So we are going into a five-week sermon series. If you want to throw up that, we're going to call it idolatry, making good things the ultimate thing. So we were looking at the lectionary, which is the prescribed readings for this fall that all Anglican churches follow. And we noticed for the first five weeks in the fall that Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's telling them about things that can get in the way of putting him first in our life. And so this is the first of five weeks on this idea of idolatry. And you guys will probably remember a couple weeks ago when I preached on Abraham and Isaac, I introduced the idea. And so I want to unpack a little bit of that idea for us today to make sure that we get it. Because this idea of idolatry is a little bit abstract. It's hard to wrap your head around. But it's an incredibly important thing to wrap our head around. An incredibly important lens and way to understand our discipleship. So I'm going to give us a picture to start out with and to help us understand big picture idolatry, and then we're going to wade into a specific thing today through our text. So if you want to go ahead and throw up this picture, I want to propose to you all that we think about idolatry as our life as a city. All right, our life being a city. And here's the wall, everything outside of the wall is things that we're not really responsible for. You know, Ryan Lockie lied about, you know, we're not really responsible for that. We, we don't, you know, we, we don't have to fix Ryan Lockie. Or a distant friend that is having marital troubles, we can pray for them, but we are not personally responsible for it. But everything inside here are the things that God has given us stewardship over, has given us some sort of responsibility for. And what I want to suggest is, if you'll notice, does anybody know what city this is? Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem. Good job. Um, So uh, down at the bottom, I want to suggest these are the less important things in our life. Maybe our clothes, maybe some of our hobbies, some of our interests down here. But the farther you go up the mountain, the more important these things are. And so I would say in here would be our house, our extended family. And up here, once you get up near the top, you got the most important things in our lives, our friends, our job, our family, our, our, our nuclear family, our marriage, our kids. And right up here in the most important areas of our lives, or at least they should be, so if, if your family's down here, and football is right here, so, something's wrong. Um, but that's for another sermon. Um, but it just shows us that you can worship anything. Um, but right up here, does anybody know what this is? At the very top of the hill, Mount Zion is what they would call it. What's up here on, on the top of Mount Zion? What's that? God, the Hall of Fame. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's where Peyton Manning's going. Um, no, but very, at the very top if, is, is the temple. And that's where God dwells. He dwells there alone. That's where we were created. And he's given us responsibility. So he dwells in the temple of our hearts. And this is the rest of our lives that he's given us responsibility for. And the way that we were created is that our worship of God and following his ways and our discipleship, what that does is trickle down into all these different areas. Does that make sense? And so that's the way we were created. But then the fall happened. 
And everything got messed up and all of our priorities got out of whack because our relationship with God got out of whack. And so what tends up happening, tends to happen in the human heart is that the things down here and right here and especially the things right up here find their way into the temple. Now if you'll throw up the next slide for me. That's what we call idolatry. And I'm going to just review it so that we have a very clear understanding of what it is. So if you were here three weeks ago, just bear with me. We'll move on to new stuff soon. But when we take good things, football, good thing, right? Or uh, house design, or our kids, our spouse, all these things are job good things, even ministry. For us, that's a huge struggle. Because we turn them into ultimate things. We turn them into the place that we get our ultimate meaning from. That's what idolatry is all about. Do you guys remember that from a couple weeks ago? All right, cool. So here's the challenge. Go ahead, flip, flip it over. That our hearts end up, instead of being God alone dwells in the temple, our hearts end up like this. Does anybody know what this is? Not Jerusalem. That's a good guess. The Pantheon, yeah, all right. The Pantheon in Rome. And what the Pantheon was, was the temple to all the gods. It was all the Roman gods were in the Pantheon. So go ahead and flip to the next one. And so you can see there's kind of this centralized place of worship, but then there's a god there, a god there, a god there. There's all these little shrines. And I want to suggest that our hearts, if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, that your heart is like a Pantheon. There's all these little gods inside And if you're a Christian, discipleship is trying to drag those gods outside so that you worship God alone. Does that make sense? Are you guys getting that picture? So it's good things, because I don't want you to hear that family or football or any of these things are bad things. No, they're all great things. But when we exalt them to something that we worship, then they become idols for us. All right, everybody tracking? All right, we're going to keep rolling. So, the challenge becomes that when we worship numerous gods, we get super overwhelmed. We get anxious. We get busy. We always feel like we're failing because all these gods are competing for our heart. You guys feel a little anxious, worn out, tired, stretched, most likely it's because there's all sorts of little gods that are, that are vying for your attention. And let's be honest, there's some things that are internal, but then there's also the cultural gods, there's our family gods. There's all these different things that are vying for attention. They stretch us and pull us in different directions. And no matter how hard you work, there's a sense that it's never enough. Now, I want to uh, speak to those who are not, not Christians in the room. Christians, you can probably buy this. John Calvin said it. He said, the heart is an idol factory. But non-Christians in the room, you might be saying, I don't worship anything. But if you listen to pop culture, one of the greatest pop cultural songs, things, the greatest things that pop culture ever uh, produced was Simon and Garfunkel. And... Simon and Garfunkel's song, The Sound of Silence, I'm sure you guys are familiar with, says, and the people bowed and prayed to the neon gods they made. If we don't have God, we make gods. Or if you remember Kathy Griffin, a couple years ago, 
made a bunch of people disgruntled. She's a redheaded comedian, and she won an Emmy, and she raised a lot of eyebrows because she came up front during her speech and said, a lot of people come up here and thank Jesus for this award. Well, I want you to know that no one has less to do with this award than Jesus. And she went on to hold up her Emmy and say, this is my God now. Her theology is exactly right, isn't it? That's what she worships. We will make a God. If we don't have a God, we'll make a God. And so we all worship something. So this series is going to be unpacking some of the things that we worship. So the question becomes, how do we address these idols? How do we try to take them out of the temple and put them at the top of the hill so that there's something that's good but not something that's ultimate for us? And so we're going to be doing that this sermon series. Now I want to now shift from, that's the big picture idea of what idolatry is, and now I want to zero in on what Jesus zeroes in on in this text. And so if you guys have your Bibles, open them up to Luke 14. Luke 14, verse 25. And we're going to drill down on this specific thing that Jesus puts his finger on. Luke 14, verse 25. The crowds are all gathered around Jesus. And this is the point where he begins his journey to the cross. And so he's preparing his disciples for what comes ahead. And he says that if anyone comes to me, this is verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I'm going to read that again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Why is Jesus saying this? It seems so un-Jesus like, doesn't it? What does he mean? then who is this guy that he could say this, right? So why is he saying it? But who is he? Who is this man that's, that's saying such a ridiculous thing? And then finally, okay, let's say we answer those two questions. What does that mean for our life? That's what we're going to spend the rest of the sermon looking at. So first off, he says to them, First off, I want to start with saying why. Why does he say this? This is a hard word from Jesus. And he says it to wake us up. He uses very strong language. Gus Gus mentioned this to me in the last service. He said it's hyperbole. He's using strong language to wake us up, to break our hardness of heart, to say, hey, look, I want to expose an idol in your life. And we think that family is important here in America. Well, in Israel, family was even more important. So he says, hey, if you're going to follow me, you need to know that my lordship over your life is going to affect your family. It's going to shake things up. The reality is that if you follow Christ, you know this to be true. He's saying, let me shoot with you straight. It's going to shake things up. It's going to shake things up in your marriage. If you start trying to to disciple your kids and you go on a vacation and you say, you know what, guys, we're not going to do cell phones on this vacation. 
You're about to shake things up, right? Or if you get home from a retreat and you're like, hey, I really need to, I feel like I need to talk to my mom about something. I need to, I need to forgive her for something, but I don't know if she even knows that she did it. You're darn right, you're going to shake things up. And so Jesus is telling us, he's giving his disciples and us a precursor. Hey, if you follow me, you've got to know the cost. There's a cost of discipleship. There's a cost of following me. And one of the costs, it is going to shake up your family. So the question then becomes, why, why does he use the phrase hate? I've always wondered that. Hate seems like very strong language. It's too strong, it would seem like. And the Hebrew word for hate here means love less. You have to love your spouse less than you love me. You have to love your, your kids less than you love me. You have to love your parents less than you love me. He certainly, don't hear me wrong, <laughs> he's not saying you should hate your kids. Everybody knows that, right? I want to get that off the table. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. But what he's saying is, I want you to love them less than me. And if you're like, that seems weird. Well, I'll tell you, if you love God more than you love your kids, you'll actually be able to love your kids way more than you'd ever be able to if you loved them more than you love God. But we'll get to that. Love less. Now that begs the question then, the next question is, who is this guy? Who is this guy that would say, you have to love your spouse and your kids less? I'll tell you what, if I ever stand up here, or Mike ever stands up here, or Gus ever stands up here and says, you have to love your kids less than you love Dan or Mike, leave. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> leave. Because that's super unhealthy. So the question is, <laughs> the question becomes, who is he? Because he's either crazy, a lunatic, an egomaniac, or he's God. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a spiritual leader. He's either crazy or he's God. And so he brings it down to a boiling question. Who do you say that I am? And if you say that I'm your God, then you do have to love me less. So he puts his finger on idolatry and he says, hey, you need to know that to follow me, there's a cost and it means you put me first in your life. And so then the question now becomes, okay, well, how do I know? How do I know if um, my family is an idol in my life? And we're going to be talking for the rest of the time about family. And I'll just go ahead and say, this is a hard one to preach on for the first part of the series. Um, some of you guys are sitting next to your parents, uh, teenagers, or some of you are like adults and you're sitting next to your aging parents and you're like, gosh, why are you preaching on this? And just to let you know, um, up until Friday, my parents-in-law were planning to come to town. <laughs> and I was gonna have to preach this sermon with looking right at them. Um, so I want to let you know this is not an easy teaching, but Jesus wants you to know that I'm going I'm to stir up your family too. And I hope you understand by the end of this sermon that that's the best thing that can ever happen to your life. So the question is, how do I know? Well, Tim Keller says, hey, you want to know if you have an idol? If you get inordinate anxiety, fear, or discouragement when things don't go the way they should go in your family, 
then that's, that's a good sign and maybe an idol. All right? And I would say, I know, inordinate anxiety, fear, yes. Discouragement, check. Yeah, okay, I got some hard work to do. So that's the cost. That's what we got to be ready for. The question then becomes, what do, what do idols in our family look like? How do we identify them? If we're, if we're looking at our own heart, we're looking at our families, and I want, I want to say that they look like generally expectations. And I want you to think about, first off, what were the expectations when you were growing up? Expectations placed on you by your family? And then what were the expectations that you are placing on your family, your kids? Whether you've spoken them or not, whether your parents told them these are the expectations, you have expectations. You could probably ask your kids, if you wanted to get real honest with them, our kids, you could ask your parents, or no, no, parents, ask your kids, forgive me. <laughs> are you all confused yet? Um, I think I am. Um, Parents, you could ask your kids, what is the pressure that you feel from me? You want to know what expectations, whether you've ever said it or not, the the pressure they're feeling from you is the expectations that that you're placing on them. It could be achievement in school. It could be achievement in career that your parents said when you were a kid, you got to get straight A's. Or it could be you have to be beautiful or you have to be athletic. Or it could be this is how our family's house looks or this is how we carry ourselves. Or these are the things that we talk about and these are the things we never talk about as a family. What are the expectations? Because you grew up with expectations and your kids are growing up in your house if you have kids with expectations. The question is, do you know what they are? And then, when you start meddling around with this, you want to know, why do I have these expectations Why are these things so deeply ingrained? These things that drive me, that haunt me? Because the idols that are in your heart, the expectations in your heart, were likely in your parents' temple too. Think about it. What drives you? Most likely it was what drove your parents. And you know where they got it? From their parents' temple You see, there's generational idols. There's idols that are passed down from family to family. So then you say, okay, well, okay, I I can understand there's some expectations that I'm placing on my kids that I'm placing on myself. My parents may be dead, but I'm still placing those expectations on myself that they had for me. So is it worth it? Should I start shaking things up in my family? That's a huge question. Because you guys... If you don't answer that question, you're going to leave, out, leave here and being like, that was some interesting ideas, but I'm not going to do anything because it's totally not worth it. So here's what I want to say. There's a cost of discipleship. There's a cost of following Jesus, and that's that it affects your family. But I want you to think through, is it worth it? And particularly, what is the cost of not following Jesus? What is the cost of not putting him first in your life? Because here's the thing, if you don't address it in your life, if you don't say, okay, God, what is this idol or this expectation I'm placing on my kids? The reality is it'll slide right into your kids' lives. And all the things in your childhood and that drive you and that haunt you will drive them and haunt them. And the same will happen to your grandkids and it'll go on and on. 
So you see Jesus, he wasn't trying to be a jerk. He wasn't trying to be the jealous boyfriend. Instead, he was saying, I want to give you a new way forward. I want to show you a new way. Because the reality is you can only live up to one set of expectations. There's God's expectations and then there's all the other expectations. So you got, you got to choose. So what if you want to follow Christ? What if you're like, you know what? Okay, I'll try. This is interesting. I'm kind of buying this idea. Maybe I can address some of these idols in my family. Maybe I'm not ready to address them with my parents yet, but I'll address them personally and I'll address them with my spouse and with my kids first and then maybe I'll talk to my parents when, once we've addressed some, some uh, in-home stuff. So how do you change? Well, you change through something called confrontation. If you want to change the expectations of your family, it's going to require some confrontation. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. We don't like confrontation, do we? If you like confrontation, something might be wrong with you. Um, (laughs) um, We don't like confrontation. And, And in a lot of ways, we feel like confrontation is unchristian, isn't it? That to follow Christ, you just kind of have to deal with the fact that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And if somebody hurts you, you just kind of eat it. But is that true? Is confrontation unchristian? Well, what does Jesus do in this passage? He confronts, right? He confronts rather abruptly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that you go to your parents or... <laughs> Go to your kids and say, hey, I'm supposed to love God way more than you. I wouldn't suggest you would confront them that hard, (laughs) more slowly. Um, But Jesus confronts, so confrontation can't be a bad thing. It's a kingdom thing. Now, loving confrontation is the way it's supposed to be, but um, confrontation is a good thing. So we need to, to move away from that idea that conflict is bad. No, actually, conflict is great in your marriage. If you never fight in your marriage, somebody is just surviving and the other person's winning. Um, Confrontation is good. But the problem is, as soon as you start dealing with these things, um, all hell breaks loose, doesn't it? Sometimes. And usually one of two things happen in families. And so one of the expectations I want you guys to think about in my family is what are the expectations about how we do conflict? And there's two main ways, and I'm going to go over them very quickly. First off is we do conflict by bottling. We bottle it. If, I, if I'm hurt by you, I will say nothing, and I'll just try to love you the best that I can without addressing the hurt. That's how the Wolf family, growing up, that's how we did it. We bottled it. And guess what? All of us struggle with anxiety. Because all that negative feelings that we're not dealing with and not reconciling with people, it's all turned inward and it eats us alive. So you either bottle it or you burst. You explode. And some of you are like, okay, yeah, Dan, you can address it with your family because you bottle it. They probably won't explode. But you don't know how my family did conflict growing up. It was, if you try to challenge mama, are you trying to challenge dad? Oh boy, you better watch out. Because they're going to say hurtful things. They're going to do hurtful things. And so, the reality is, if you confront, it opens you up to attack. You've got to do it wisely. Um, but what I want to say is this. 
that don't lose hope. My wife and I, I'll I'll finish the story, but I'll share a little bit now. My wife and I um, have, for the last six years, have had just tension with my family, with my mom and dad. And it was like kind of walls were up and we were both kind of hurt, but we didn't really talk about it. And it was like, I felt like my relationship with my family was slowly drifting away because I had to protect my wife. And it sucked. And I didn't want to address it. I didn't want to address it. And God kept working on my heart, but I didn't want to address it. Why? Because we're afraid, right? We're afraid that we're going to be rejected. We're afraid that it's going to get worse. And that's in a bottling family. In a bursting family? Oh, man. Uh, how, how do you even touch that? And what I want to suggest is if you're in a bursting family, but you want to have a good relationship with your family, you might need family counseling. You might need a mediator sit with you guys and say, hey, mom, dad, this is what you did that hurt me, or this is what you do with the grandkids, and it's, and it's, and it's tearing us apart, and it's not, we don't want to have a relationship with you because of it. And you know, it's, it's pretty, there can be a lot of shame attached to counseling. Like, oh gosh, our families must be broken if we do counseling. There's a cost to, oh, the shame of it. But what's the cost of not doing it, right? The cost is that you just, the relationship dies on the vine. And so I want to suggest, if you're like, I don't think I could, my parents are bursters, well, maybe think about what could it look like to have a mediator there. So we don't address these things because ultimately, deep down, we're afraid of rejection, And so my question then, I turn it to Jesus, is Jesus, do you really know? Do you really know what you're asking us to do to put you first in our life, to change our expectations, to rock, to to change the way my family works? Do you really know what it's like, how painful that could be, the risk that I'm taking? So I want to look at the, the cost for Jesus. Did he, is there any cost for him? Yeah, there's all sorts of costs for us if we address these things, but what about him? And I want to look at this crucial moment in Jesus' life. I'm just going to read it to you. You don't have to flip there. It's in Mark 3, 20 through 35. It's this really short little episode that's incredibly powerful because Jesus is he's starting to launch his ministry. He's starting to go public about who he is and what he's come to do. And he goes up on the mountain, draws his 12 disciples to himself, and the crowds are starting to gather. He's healing people. And then it says that in verse 20, then Jesus went home, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus, you are out of your mind. It's time for you to come home. It's time for you to fix some things around the house like you used to. And it says in verse 31, And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Forever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. What Jesus was saying is, if I have to choose between my mother and my heavenly father, I'm going to choose my heavenly father. Even if it meant his mother of 30 years rejected him. Because Jesus had one God in the temple of his heart. One God. He knew that he was created, and man was created for one God in the temple of his heart. 
And so he, he went on with life with his disciples, his brothers in Christ, teaching them how to have one God in the temple of their hearts. And for the next three years of ministry, he walked alongside them and grew in, in closeness with them. And then as those three years drew to an end, on the days leading up to his death, Jesus went to Jerusalem and he had been warning his apostles week in and week out, hey guys, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna rise again, I promise, but I'm gonna die. And when it came to the point where he was going to be crucified, they said, no, no, you can't go to the cross. You can't die. That's not the plan. And Jesus said, if I have to choose between my brothers and my heavenly father, I'm gonna choose my heavenly father, even if my friends reject me. Why? Because Jesus knew that he could only have one temple in his heart. And so he went to the cross alone, utterly alone. He faced the cross utterly alone without his friends. Why? Why? Why did he go to the cross? He went to the cross to set you, your family, free from all of those expectations, the earn it mentality that you have felt since you were a child. He went to set you free, to say, I've given it all to you already. My expectation for you is that you're broken and that I love you. Why? So he could clean out the temple of our hearts so that we have one God in our temple, one God in our hearts. He did it so he could reconcile us to his Father. And here's the deal. God made you for himself. And your temple is made for one big, gracious God. And he will take as much space in your heart as you give him. If you're like, I'm not ready to clean the temple out, but I'll give you a couple things. He'll say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm down with that. I can work with that. So, but, here's the thing. Give him everything. I promise you it'll be better. So, take those idols out of your temple and place them right at the top of the hill. And let your worship of God trickle down into all those different aspects of your life. Now, I want to conclude with this. Um, I want to conclude with the practical application. How, how, how do we actually address these things? First thing is, on the back of, on the way out, um, on the baptismal font, and I think that there's another little podium out in the narthex, I have a question for you guys. I want you to take that sheet and think about those questions this week. Take the, do, do them personally and then talk about them with your spouse. Talk about them with your kids. The question is this. First off, go ahead and you can throw up those questions. I think it's slide. There it is. All right. First off is what were the spoken or unspoken expectations in your family growing up? Because probably there's some source of idolatry there. Especially how conflict was handled. What were the expectations? How did y'all do conflict? And then the second thing is, what do you want to be the expectations in your family now from this day forward? What do you want the expectations to be? And are they gospel-centered expectations? Because a lot of the time, what we invariably do with our spouse, with our kids, is that we set up expectations of what they do rather than set up expectations about who they are. We oftentimes unintentionally say, you need to do great in school, or you need to succeed in sports, or you need to have lots of friends. But what I want to say is, focus on 
who they are, who you are as a family. I'll throw out some examples of what it could like, look like to live gospel-centered expectations. We're going to open up when we get hurt. We're going to just air it out, get it out there. If you're hurt, it's okay. Bring it to mom, bring it to dad. We're going to be a family that forgives. We're going to open up about our weaknesses, failures, and sin. We're going to be totally vulnerable with each other because we are a family that's broken, but a family that's loved by God. We're going to build each other up. It could be as simple as that. We're not going to be a family that tears each other down. Or we're going to be a family that strives for excellence. Kids in the room don't hear, okay, I don't have to do school anymore. Great. Thanks, Dan, for preaching that sermon. Don't hear that. We're going to be a family that strives for excellence, but if it's God first and family second and school third, so if I have to get a B so that I can go on that family trip or so that I can go on that youth retreat, it's going to be okay. So excellence with qualifications. Or another one is we're going to be present parents or present siblings, but not perfect siblings. We're not going to have the idea that we have to be perfect, but we are going to try to be present. I asked Ross Milliken um, two or three weeks ago, I was just chatting with him, and I said, hey, y- your kids seem to be very well adjusted in life. They seem to love God. They, they seem to not hate each other. What- what's the secret? Tell me the secret. I need to know. Um, and he was like, thought about it for a while, and he's like, I don't know. I, you know. We just spent a lot of time together, went on trips together, made time. It could be as simple as expectations as we're going to have quality time together. We're going to fight for that quality time together. And so in the parallel teaching in Mark 8, 36, Jesus says this. He said, hey, you have to follow me first. And then he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In the context of family, what does it profit a family to gain success and respect and gain the whole world, but to lose their soul? Because God knows, God knows that only one God, we can only have one God in the temple of our hearts. And so let him in. Let me pray for us.